This is Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Let's get into it. Let those who love the Lord hate evil, for he guards the lives of his faithful ones and delivers them from the hand of the wicked. That is Psalm 9710. Guys, thank you so much for listening to the show today. Today is going to be a little bit of a rough one. It's going to be a heavy one, as I've talked about a lot before. I don't like to hop, you know, right into really big things that happen in culture or big things that happen in the world or in terms of like, you know, terrorist attacks or school shootings or something like that. I kind of like for the dust to settle a little bit before I just launch in and start giving my feedback. And, And part of the reason is because so many people hop into subject matters and they hop into all kinds of things. And then later on, it's like, oh crap, you know, I, I kind of messed that up. I kind of screwed the pooch on that one. I kind of, you know, jumped the gun. I, you know, put the cart before the horse, whatever, you know, colloquialism you want to use. But I, I definitely wanted to do that with what happened in Israel a few weeks ago. And so we're going to get into that today. But I did want to remind you guys that we have a new beef sponsor here for the show, Primal Beef. So if you go to their website, it's in the show notes, use the promo code Kyle to get 10% off of that. And then also we're sponsored by and we're supporting. Uh, supporting Origin and Jocko Fuel. So guys, if you want the best hunting gear, boots, jeans, geese, if you want all kinds of supplements and protein and all that great stuff on the Jocko Fuel side, just make sure you use the promo code UNDAUNTED at checkout. So promo code for Primal Beef is Kyle. Promo code for Origin and Jocko Fuel is UNDAUNTED. But if you're listening to this uh, and you've been following our knife raffle, I told you today, I promised you that we would do an announcement of the winner of the knife raffle. So that's what we're going to be doing today because, you know, we did that for a few weeks. And I just want to say thank you so much to all the donors out there because the thing that was so crazy is I was like, I think we should try to raise $10,000. It's like, that's, that's kind of a big, hairy, audacious goal. If you think about $10,000, like half of it going to Undaunted Life and half of it going to the rescue team of the Tim Tebow Foundation, which fights against child sexual exploitation and trafficking. Like that would be kind of cool if we could do that. And right out of the gate, the donations were much slower than the last time we did a knife raffle. And I was like, oh no, I I, kind of went out and, you know, made this big goal. And I just don't think we're going to get close. But then the guys from Stevenson Knives stepped up big time. Out of the blue, I get a text while I'm sitting in Sunday school and they're like, hey, you know what? We're so tickled to death that people are donating money to try to get one of our knives. What if we gave a knife to anyone that donated $1,000 or more, just guaranteed them a knife? They could still be in the raffle, but they're guaranteed to get a knife. And I was like, really? Y'all want to do that? And so a lot of guys did that. I announced it via our email list, which I'll talk more about here in a second. We had a bunch of guys hop on board. So these are guys that, you know, were, you know, supporters of Undaunted Life and they wanted to get one of these cool knives, but they also wanted to be in the raffle and they wanted to support us and the the rescue team and all that. So it was just an amazing, amazing thing. We're so glad that we ended up raising $10,455. I know that's not like a, you know, a nice even number, but some people, you know, didn't just give $25 increments. They did a little bit random, but we did our goal. We hit our goal. You guys hit the goal of $10,000. I made the donation to the Tim Tebow Foundation yesterday. So uh, that's, you know, in Undaunted Life's name and in your guys' name. And so they're literally going to be kids that are going to be saved from and cared for after they've been taken out of sex trafficking because of what you guys did. But like I said, we need to give the announcement to uh, the winner. I said I was going to announce it here on this show. They've already been notified, but here's the video of the announcement, or you can listen to the audio here as well. All right, guys, it is Monday after 5 o'clock, which means the knife raffle is over for the Stevenson knife. And so here we are on wheelofnames.com. Do you see all those little slots? 
Each one of those individual slots accounts for a $25 donation. Okay, I can't show you the names because not everyone gave me permission, but those are $25 donation. Guys, we raised over $10,000. We hit our goal, but now is the time. Let me grab it for us to do the giveaway for this amazing, beautiful Stevenson knife. Here we go, guys. One lucky winner is going to get this. So here we go. Click to spin. Jay Jensen, you are the winner. All right, I'll send you an email, my friend. Again, guys, thank you so, so very much. All right, so Jay Jensen, thank you so much for being one of the donors on Daunts of Life, and congratulations for the knife. Uh, and again, thank you to Stevenson Knives out of Florida. We're so thankful for you guys. Guys, they're not paying for a sponsorship or anything. They're just big supporters of us. But if you like people that like us, please support them. And so whether it's Stevenson Knives or, again, Origin or Primal Beef or LMS Tech or, you know, Mike McCall with Blue Crest Financial or like any of these types of guys, just make sure you show them love. OK, so the next time you want to get a knife as a gift for somebody or, you know, as Christmas is coming up, make sure you keep Stevenson Knives in mind. Now, before we get into the content today, uh, we're not going to have a bunch of ad breaks or anything in this this episode today. But I did want to flow on something real quick. So as soon as the Israel stuff started popping off here at the beginning of October, I started using the hashtag I stand with Israel on my show social posts and with Instagram, we've had kind of like a slow, uh, you know, growth with them, but we, we saw some explosive growth to our Instagram account this summer. And so when I was in Jacksonville, hanging out with Joby Martin a couple of weeks ago or a couple of months ago, rather, we went over the 10,000 followers threshold, which is kind of cool. Cause it's a nice round number and it's like, Hey, this is great. This is awesome. And then we just caught fire. And within like four or five weeks, we were at 19,000. But then I saw something interesting because I would, you know, uh, once a day or so, I would go and check and see our followers and it was always going up, 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 up and up. And then one day I saw it went from 19,000 to 18.9. I was like, that, that was kind of strange. And then a week went by and we didn't get any more followers. And then another week went by, no more followers. Another week went by, no followers. Uh, we were still getting, you know, some content engagement, but you know, none of, none of it was going up, I guess. And then I realized that the time when our, our page started to seemingly get throttled was the day I started using the hashtag I stand with Israel. And so since that time, our engagement specifically on Instagram has gone down by like 80%, you know, it's gone down by 80% of profiles reached and those types of things. And so it seems pretty obvious that Instagram has joined with some other organizations that are shadow banning us because, you know, our big tech overlords, they're not really big fans of the types of things that we talk about. They're not big fans of Israel. They're not big fans of anything from the conservative sphere. You know, that's not really something that they're into. And so I want to make sure that you guys can continue to get information from us because Instagram's not going to put it in front of you. Facebook's probably not going to put it in front of you. YouTube's definitely not putting it in front of you, all those types of things. And so if you guys are not signed up for our email list, we just created a new landing page today. It's undaunted.life backslash email list. That will be in the show notes, undaunted.life backslash email list. And that will kind of uh, allow you guys, if you're not already signed up for our email list, make sure you do that. Because when we put out new content or we put out announcements about raffles or new merch or, or different things that we're going to be doing, and hopefully we have some really cool announcements coming up in 2024, we need to be able to get that information to you guys. And if it comes directly to your inbox, like the first time it's sent out to you, make sure it comes to your inbox, you know, mark it as non-spam and all those types of things, and then we'll be able to communicate with you directly.
But let's go ahead and get to the content for today. Again, this is going to be uh, kind of a rougher episode, but we really need to dig in to what happened on October the 7th, 2023. So early in the morning of that day, 50 years and one day after the Yom Kippur War, Hamas, which is a fundamentalist Muslim terror group, which we'll talk way more about here later, they funded and they were at least funded in part by the Muslim fundamentalist terror government of Iran. They unleashed a very, very sophisticated, coordinated terrorist attack on multiple civilian and military locations inside the Jewish state of Israel. So reports state that over a thousand Hamas terrorists, maybe upwards of 1,500 Hamas terrorists attacked Israel by breaking through border walls, overtaking military outposts. They even attacked via paragliders from the air, boats from the water, trucks and motorcycles from the ground, from everywhere they could come from. And the terrorists used drones to bomb, uh, drop bombs on Israel's border defenses, essentially rendering them useless. And then they use additional bombs and bulldozers to break through Israeli border walls. The death count as of this morning uh, on these multiple terrorist attacks that occurred in that country sits at around 1,400 people, uh, mostly Israelis, mostly Jews. They're still finding people that have been massacred. And this is easily the largest massacre of Jews on a single day since, uh, the, since the Holocaust. And in a single day in Jewish history, it's just an absolutely astonishing thing that's happened. So there were, you know, close to 3,000 that were injured. Uh, hundreds, if not thousands, had been kidnapped and taken back to Gaza. It's kind of impossible for us to know exactly how many hostages there are. Uh, some reports, some of the uh, best reports are at least 200 are still being held captive in Gaza right now. Um, and at least 30 Americans were killed in these attacks. I think 30 was the last number that I saw. And the, the information that I have from men performing operations on the ground right now in Israel is that there are something like a dozen, maybe 10 or 12 Americans that are in Hamas custody at the moment. Uh, they could be alive or dead. We assume that they are alive right now, but we really don't know at this point. Uh, there are two likely outcomes uh, for these Americans that are stuck there and for the rest of the hostages as well, is that they'll likely be tortured and then murdered. And also, we could potentially pay a ransom to get them back. And unfortunately, the former is more likely than the latter. We know that they've released a couple of hostages, maybe like four or five hostages up to this point. It's, it's mainly a PR ploy, and we'll talk more about that later. But on the day of the attacks, uh, seeing how it was a holiday, there were around 40,000 Americans that were in Israel. Okay. Now, right after the attacks, there were still estimates that about half of those Americans got out, you know, pretty quickly. But then the other half were just stuck. They were being kicked out of their hotels. Uh, there were no flights out of Israel at the moment. Everybody was canceling flights. So it was having to be, you know, private flights to get them out. And just to kind of give you an idea of the lay of the land, because most people don't really understand the geography of that area, much less the politics. But the surrounding countries make it basically impossible for Americans or, you know, Westerners of any kind to find safe harbor, you know, out of the country of Israel, because Lebanon, that's north of Israel, that's where Hezbollah operates, and that's a proxy state of Iran, uh, just like Palestine is, which even though Palestine is not technically a country, but then we have Syria, that's northeast of Israel, that's where ISIS roams, and that's a proxy state of Russia. And then to the east of Israel, we have Jordan, which is ran by the Muslim Brotherhood. And then we have Egypt, which is southwest of Israel. And they're essentially, uh, essentially, the, the, we kind of have relations with them. But the main road system that would be able to get people out of that area runs right by the Gaza Strip. So Americans can't just go walking across that road, you know. And as, as recently as June of this year, most people didn't know this, there was an Egyptian policeman who shot and killed three Israeli soldiers that were securing the military posts in that area. And they killed them on the Israel side of the Egyptian border. 
Okay, this incident was considered uh, by the Israeli government to be a terrorist attack. And so as of right now, they're not accepting any refugees. There's been some reports of them allowing aid to Palestinians to come through Egypt, but it's kind of a mess over there right now. Not a whole lot of folks that are really friendly to Americans or Westerners. Now, to state the obvious, this was an abject failure by the intelligence agency of Israel and her allies. Uh, the fact that a lot has been made about the fact that this was able to be done and that the response was so, uh, so I guess, slow uh, to respond to all these things. There's already conspiracy theories out there about all that. I'm not really going to go in that today. Uh, go into that today. Now, Hamas is very proud of what they've done. Okay, so most of the videos and pictures that you see circulating the internet since the the attacks happened. Those were posted by Hamas. So some people are like, oh, this is all propaganda from Israel and different things like that. Again, these are just anti-Semites that are trying to you know, dunk on Israel. But these were posted by Hamas. They're very proud of what they've done. Uh, and after the attacks, video surfaced of leaders of Hamas, who are you know, mostly living high on the hog in Qatar and Turkey, uh, funded by aid money that was supposed to go to the Palestinian people, of course. They were seen celebrating the attacks and literally bowing down and, and praying and thanking Allah for helping them murder Jews. And it's also worth noting here that these leaders of Hamas were actually voted in by the people of Palestine to represent them in 2006. So if, if you didn't know that, yes, the Palestinian, pe Palestinian people voted for a known terroristic Jew hatred organization like, Hama like Hamas to be their political representative. So all these people that are trying to draw this, this hard line between Hamas and, you know, just regular old Palestinians, I'm wondering where you're getting, getting this hard line distinction. Because essentially every single government the Palestinians have voted in has been an Islamist, Islamic terroristic government. So it's like, does that mean every Palestinian supports those groups? No, but does it mean a plurality, a majority of them do? Yes, it certainly does. And then we have confirmation as of right now that the country of Iran, uh, by their own admission, they helped pay for, facilitate, and plan this attack on Israel. So in this attack, a lot has been made about this. This attack took place just a few weeks after the Biden administration released $6 billion in aid money to Iran. Uh, now, they've since said that the aid money from Haran, or to Iran has been refrozen, but then the State Department has been actually really cagey about what would happen if Palestine requested funds, so who actually knows. But our government, at least in part, allowed our tax dollars to be used to murder Jews. Whether it was the frozen money or the non-frozen money or other things that we have given to aid, you know, organizations like Hamas that runs Palestine, we've somewhat, at least in part, have, have aided in that. And then also these individuals, they were seen on the floor of their Capitol building in Tehran chanting death to America, death to Israel. So this is just kind of par for the course for them. Now, there are reports that some of the weapons using the attacks. This is just egregious that they were the exact weapons that the Biden administration left behind during the United States withdrawal from Afghanistan. So just an absolute, just horrible, horrible thing. And this is one of the rare times as you kind of look at the situation when you have a win-win situation on one side and a lose-lose situation on the other. And we're going to get way more into all this a little bit later. For Hamas, this is a win-win because if Israel retaliates, which certainly they're in the process of doing right now, then they get to make Israel seem bad and mean. And if Israel doesn't retaliate, then they get to make Israel seem weak. But Israel is in a lose-lose situation. Because if they do nothing, then they don't bring judgment or justice for the attack that killed, you know, hundreds and hundreds of their people, right? And if they retaliate at all, the Western media and everyone else will jump on them for being too harsh in response, right? 
But not to be deterred, Israel's Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has officially declared war on Hamas. He did that almost immediately. The counteroffensive began almost immediately. They're currently uh, in the process of doing airstrikes before they have a ground invasion. They've declared a unity government so that they can do things much more quickly. Uh, the last I saw is the country called up close to 400,000 military reservists, but they currently have a 150% reporting rate for reserves. So that means that over 50% more have showed up than have been called up to action, okay? And many more volunteers surely will be coming. Now, this is very likely going to be a very protracted counteroffensive, okay? So I don't want to be hyperbolic, but this is not going to take, you know, days. This is not going to take weeks. This is not going to take months. This is going to be a long thing. This is going to be a long thing because Hamas has spent most of the aid money they've gotten building these very um, sophisticated tunnels underneath the the Palestinian areas. So it's going to be very, very hard to to, you know, rat them out of their holes and kill them. Uh, but I also don't want to be hyperbolic, but I, I do believe that World War III is certainly not off the table, guys. And you know, a lot of people have talked about this, but just in case you haven't really heard it, if Hezbollah really formulates an attack from Israel's north, Israel would very likely and very easily wipe them off the face of the map, but it would cause them to fight on two fronts. They would need to be fighting in the north and in the south. And if that happens, that would very likely get Syria involved. Okay, so Syria, again, is a proxy state of Russia, and that would potentially open the door for Iran, because Iran obviously, you know, supports Hezbollah in Lebanon. That would open the door for Iran to attack Israel as well. And if that happens, we, America, will be at war with Iran. Okay, and then who would back Iran? Russia and Turkey certainly would. And then also, if that happens, China and North Korea are not just going to sit by and watch what happens in the Middle East and wait for the dust to settle. Okay. And they certainly aren't going to join the side of Israel and the United States. Okay. Also, since the attacks, uh, written plans have been found that Hamas was apparently using to carry out these atrocities. So there were certain Hamas terrorists who were specifically charged with focusing on killing civilians. Okay. So when people are like, oh, civilians were just in the way. No, there were specific Hamas terrorists where it was their job to target civilians for slaughter. Okay. While others were focusing specifically on kidnapping civilians. Okay. These plans also stated that they should target as many schools or gatherings where there would be children as possible. So again, these weren't guys that were just trying to kill military age males or, or military members of, of Israel's defense forces. No, they were specifically targeting children so that they could kill as many of them as possible as well. There were videos and pictures released by Hamas again which showed Hamas members caring for Israeli children. Oh, isn't that nice? You know, this is just, you know, they got caught up in the war and it's, it's no big deal. Like, look, they're caring for them. But people were using this as evidence that Israel was spreading propaganda, right? When they were saying that Hamas was targeting and killing children. They're like, look, we obviously have evidence that Hamas is caring for children, you see. But in light of these written plans, guys, it seems clear now that the only propaganda was coming from Hamas because they themselves were specifically targeting children for destruction. Now, some have asked, you know, why Hamas did not attack on the 50th anniversary of the Yom Kippur War? Why was it 50 years in one day? Now, the obvious answer to me is that they made sure that the attacks fell on Saturday because that's the Jewish Sabbath day. And they knew that the, the people's technology would be turned off and would not allow them to be alerted to the attacks sooner than they otherwise would. So they would essentially be caught flat footed. Now, a lot of people have referred to this as Israel's 9-11, but really on the day of the attacks, Larry Elder posted this, and it really helped me put this in perspective, so I'll read his post here. No, Israel is one thirty-fifth the size of America, 
On 9-11, terrorists murdered 3,000 Americans. In the recent terror attack, Hamas terrorists murdered over 1,000 Israelis. Adjusted to our population size, the number of Israelis murdered is equivalent to 35,000 Americans murdered on 9-11. So this is Israel's 9-11 times 13. Okay, now, again, those numbers have been adjusted because he posted that almost immediately after these attacks, uh, these these numbers of dead for the Israelis was released. And so the sentiment is the same, though, but we're talking about as if a terrorist attack occurred here where 35,000 to 40,000 Americans were killed, just to put it in perspective. Now, the Biden administration has been, initially they were pretty good, but they've since been a very, very mixed bag on this attack, but, you know, a lot more bad than there's been good. So they've been saying some of the right things and doing some of the right things uh, after the attacks, but some of the other communication has been very, very strange, some of it just deeply inappropriate. So Biden's comments in the media, uh, for the most part, were really, really good after this, saying, hey, we're going to support Israel. We started moving our aircraft carriers in the Mediterranean to the co- closer to the coast of Israel and to the coast of Lebanon so that we could respond. Uh, Joe Biden took a trip to Israel, which... I thought it was strange because it's like, okay, you're going to Israel. There's nothing you're going to do physically while you're there other than keep the invasion of the Hamas territories from happening because obviously they're not going to let that happen while the American president is there in country. And then he spent a lot of time on the beach, which was like, it was just certainly not a good look. But then the other day, it was earlier this week, the White House press secretary, Karine Jean-Pierre, she was asked a question about the rise in anti-Semitism. And her immediate response was to not address anti-Semitism at all, but to talk about anti-Muslim hate, as if that was the question. So that messaging was was really ridiculous. Then, you know, when Joe Biden addressed the nation last week, he talked about anti-Semitism and Islamophobia in the same sentence. It's like nobody cares about those things combined right now. We're we're caring about anti-Semitism right now because Jews in Israel were killed were killed literally for the crime of being Jews. And so it's just been this mishmash, just nonsense from them. But also, we have to remember that him, the Joe Biden and his administration and the Obama administration, of which this is basically the third term of that we're living in right now, they're the ones that made the mistake by creating the environment where something like this could happen to begin with. Because a lot of people posted like, man, you know, mean tweets are a lot better than World War Three, obviously talking about the fact that when Donald Trump was in office, there were no new wars started by America and everybody in the world kind of chilled out, right? You know, there wasn't these problems in Afghanistan. You know, Ukraine hadn't been invaded by Russia. There certainly weren't these attacks on Israelis that were going down. And it's one of those things where it was a peace through strength, which is what Donald Trump showed. And it actually works, as it turns out. So if you tut-tut a a regime that wants to kill you and everyone like you, and you give them money and you give them support, isn't it just astonishing? It's just absolutely astonishing that that doesn't work. That these people, it's like, wait a minute, I want you dead. We don't really want to, yeah, we'll take your money, we'll take your aid, but we don't really want to negotiate with you because we don't believe that you should exist because you're either Jewish or you're American. But at the same time, the Obama administration, the Biden administration, that's how they operate. That's their foreign policy, which is just astonishing to me. And before we start breaking this down any further, I just want to do a quick check-in. Where are all the, I want to be known for what I'm for and not what I'm against people on this one? Where, Where are you guys at? Because, again, I'm always informed that I shouldn't get into the political thing. I shouldn't fight the culture war. And, you know, Kyle, you're, you're just you're known for a lot of things you're against. What, but what are you for? What are you for? Where are you guys at right now? Are you expressing your displeasure 
with what happened, but are you also equivocating both sides? I'm assuming that's what you're doing, and we'll get more into that here in a second. But this atrocity has helped to really remove the masks from anti-Semites, anti-Semites all over the globe. So I thought about this almost immediately. You kind of have general anti-Semites, right? So those are people that just believe that Jews shouldn't exist, right? They're just generally anti-Semitic. But then you have another group of targeted anti-Semites. So these are people that are, yeah, probably okay with Jews existing, but Jews should definitely not have a Jewish state. Okay, so these are anti-Zionists. But then you have Christian anti-Semites. These are people that believe that the Jews had it coming. Why? Because they killed Jesus. So the Jews had this one coming. I got a DM almost immediately when I started commenting about this on Instagram, and it was basically that sentiment, which is like, Kyle, why, why do you care about the Jews? Like, they killed Jesus. So I was like, hey, dude, we killed Jesus. All of us. Every sinner that's ever existed, which is every single person that's ever existed on this planet, except for Jesus. We killed Jesus. Like, I'm not going to hold Jews in 2023 that live in Israel responsible for what a handful of Jewish elites did 2,000 years ago. I'm not going to do that. So we've just seen a lot of anti-Semitism, really. It's just kind of the, the, the mask has been taken off. Like, these people are just rabid anti-Semites, and we're just now being made aware of it, I guess. Now, at this point of the show, um, <coughs> excuse me, I'm actually going to be listing off some of the atrocities that happened. Okay? This is certainly not an exhaustive list. These are in no particular order. Um, I'm not going to be showing any videos or pictures of this if you're watching this on YouTube or Rumble. But I think that it's important for us to go through some of the atrocities that have happened for one reason, because here we are a few weeks later and people are already forgetting what happened, especially the people calling for ceasefire and for peace negotiations. Like, and we'll certainly talk more about that here later. But I'm not doing this to be voyeuristic, to be like, okay, um, let's talk about the most macabre things possible and, and make it as dark as possible. But here's the reality is that I can't be here on this planet and equip men to push back darkness if we pretend like darkness has not happened and if we're not familiar with exactly what type of darkness happened. So this is going to be disturbing uh, to hear. It's certainly going to be hard for me to say. Like I remember, so much of this information I delivered to my Sunday school class the, the week after this attack took place. And I remember just like, I read this list over and over and over so I wouldn't get choked up uh, while I was in front of the class and it just happened anyway, right? So this is not going to be fun, but don't turn away from this. Do not skip this section, okay? So over 250 people were killed at uh, the Supernova Music Festival near Kibbutz Raim, which is close to the Gaza Strip. So a, a kibbutz, by the way, because that's language that's been used a lot, that's just a communal settlement. It's like a farm that a lot of people, a lot of families live on. So over 50 Hamas terrorists showed up in vans dressed in military uniforms. Uh, some flew into the festival grounds via paragliders, shooting rockets and fully automatic rifles. Those that tried to flee in their cars ran into armed blockades where they were literally systematically shot and killed while they were still in their vehicles. The Hamas terrorists also blocked off many of the exits from the festival grounds, which forced hundreds of the attendees to attempt to flee across an open field. And so stationed alongside, you probably saw this video, stationed alongside the field uh, were many armed Hamas terrorists that were ready 
for the mass of people that would attempt to flee. And so they were just easily mowed down uh, across that field. They were just mercilessly, mercilessly killed. And some of them instead were kidnapped. And some of them have surely been murdered since. And some of them have surely been raped and tortured. Also, Hamas terrorists killed over 100 people just in Kibbutz Bari. So they essentially just went door to door looking for Israelis to slaughter. They fired rockets into homes to scare people out. And once out, they were shot and killed. The Hamas terrorists were setting homes on fire, waiting for the smoke and fire to force the inhabitants out of the homes and then gunning them down. Hamas terrorists discovered a group of civilians that were hiding in an underground bunker. They opened the hatch of the bunker, dropped a grenade inside and then shut the hatch, killing everyone inside. Hamas terrorists hiding near a gate that could only be opened by a card that had like one of those like card readers on it to open the gate. As soon as a car approached and the gate started to open, they ambushed that car and they shot and killed all the people inside. A parent and a small child were found bound together with wire and burned alive, but the, the bodies were, were so charred afterwards that they, they just made this large, you know, black clump of burnt human flesh. So it was only when the coroner discovered that there were two spines in that mass, one small one and one large one, that they realized it was a parent and their child that were burned alive together. There was a video that Hamas terrorists posted where they showed multiple hostages on camera claiming that they would be killed if Israel attacked them. But come to find out, those people were shot dead almost immediately after they stopped recording, after Hamas stopped their little propaganda video. They were just murdered right there. A young girl found out that her grandmother was murdered by Hamas terrorists when she went to her grandmother's Facebook page and saw a video uh, that the terrorists had posted on her grandmother's page of them killing her grandmother. At the entrance of Kibbutz Bari, there was a car that was filled with civilian Israelis. They were trying to escape. Hamas burned them alive while they were still in the car. A Hamas terrorist shot and killed a man and then was seen on video trying to behead the man with a garden hoe afterwards. A mother was sent a text message from Hamas terrorists. The text was sent from her son's phone and the message was a video of her son being executed by Hamas. Also recently, they found a family of four that was bound, tortured, and mutilated. So essentially what they found is uh, mom and dad on one side of the table on their knees bound and two kids on the other side of the table. And they found that, you know, eyeballs were missing, fingers were missing. So these people were tortured and they were having to look at their family members as they were being tortured. And uh, they were found with bullets in the backs of their heads. So at some point Hamas got bored and uh, these terrorists just shot them in the back of the head. And also you could see uh, from this, the, the evidence that they discovered here that the Hamas terrorists literally were sitting there eating the family's food while they were, you know, torturing them and then killing them. Countless women and children have been brutally raped. Uh, some of them have been subsequently killed at this point, obviously, and some of them are now going to be sex slaves, uh, sex slaves moving forward. Um, there was a video going around on the first day where this woman was being paraded around and being stuffed into a vehicle, but the back of her pants, she was wearing like gray sweatpants. Uh, it looked like she had sat in mud, but her her butt was caked in blood because she had been anally and vaginally raped so brutally so many times that she was literally just bleeding from her anus and vagina. A woman also was found shot to death. Her newborn baby was found dead outside of her body, still attached by the umbilical cord. 
And in uh, Kibbutz Kfar Aza, Israeli military forces discovered the bodies of at least 40 babies that were murdered by Hamas terrorists. Uh, now, typically in a kibbutz, all the babies are housed in the same nursery. They're all housed in one nursery. And this is very unfortunate considering what happened. But all the babies in this particular nursery, in this particular kibbutz, were murdered. Uh, several of them were shot in the head while they were in their cribs or their baby carriers. Many of them were beheaded. And some of them were actually burned alive. Now, you may have heard about this story because, you know, a lot of people came out and said, there's no evidence of these people being beheaded. Like, this is all Israeli propaganda. Now, what's interesting is these people are fine. And Danny was saying, oh, yeah, you know, Hamas, they they cut people's heads off and they shot people in the streets and they raped grandmothers and they did all that. But gosh, they wouldn't behead babies. It's like, really? That's not on the menu of options for these savages? Are you kidding? And then here's the thing, like, this is just a game these people are playing because we've, we've seen no pictures of these beheaded babies, right? And so these people are like, oh, well, there's no proof, no pictures, no proof. But if pictures were provided, they would just say it was Israeli propaganda or AI or something like that. So it's, it's just nonsense. But I will say with those last two stories, with the baby that was dead outside of its mother, still attached to the umbilical cord, or to these babies, these young babies that were currently located outside the womb of their mother that were shot, beheaded, and burned alive. If, that, if those descriptions made you feel sick and enraged, but you support abortion for any reason, under any circumstances, might I suggest that you have a seared conscience? Because I saw a lot of international outrage at the story of these babies being murdered, beheaded, and burned. But when a woman pays an assassin a few hundred dollars to do it in a supposed medical facility, we call it essential health care or a woman's right to choose, right? Now, in all these videos, you can find uh, easily right now, in all these videos of these atrocities, you can hear the Hamas terrorists and their supporters, which are the people of Palestine, screaming and chanting, Allahu Akbar. Not Allah Akbar, but Allahu Akbar, okay? which means God is great or, or God is the greatest. Now, this is going to be shocking for some of you, and it's going to be hard to hear for most of you, but this is exactly the, what happened in Israel. This is exactly what the false prophet Muhammad would want his followers to do. To a T. This idea that Islam is a religion of peace is straight propaganda. It is absolutely false. Now, I've talked about Nabil Qureshi on this show before. Um, this is a guy, he, he's, he's since passed away of cancer, um, but he was a Muslim for his entire life, but he, he actually became a Christian and turned into a Christian apologist. He wrote the book Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus, which is one our one, on our 100 books list uh, that every modern Christian man should read. He also wrote a book called No God But One, and then also a book called Answering Jihad. All three of those books are ones that need to be in your library, Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus, no God but one, and answering jihad. But I want to read to you an excerpt from his book, No God But One. I began to investigate this matter of violence. There are violent verses in the Quran, but because there are also peaceful verses, I believed at first that their context was defensive fighting. As I went deeper, I realized that that was simply not the case. For example, Surah 9 is the last major chapter to have been composed, and it is also the most violent chapter in the Quran. See verses 5, 29 through 33, and 111 as examples. These verses are frightening, 
commanding Muslims to fight and kill non-Muslims, saying that Allah has made Islam to prevail over all religions and that Muslims must slay in battle. It seems that Surah 9, as the final major chapter that Muhammad left for Muslims, was intended as marching orders for the Muslim community, and they certainly treated the chapter that way. That is why within 150 years of Muhammad's death, Muslims had conquered one-third of the known world. In addition to the Quran, there are also the traditions of Muhammad, the Hadith. These form the lens through which the Quran is often applied. People go to the Hadith to see how Muhammad lived. Because there are so many Hadith, people can point to peaceful ones and say, that's how Islam should be. At the same time, people like ISIS point to the violent ones and say, that's how Islam should be. Who is right? Once again, those who wish to consistently follow the trajectory of Muhammad's life as found in the Hadith end up closer to the position of ISIS. That is not to suggest that peaceful Muslims who say Islam is a religion of peace are lying to you. They honestly believe it. I believed it. But they haven't investigated the original sources, or at least they haven't done so in a way that is faithful to history. Early Islam was, in fact, rather violent. Islam, even during Muhammad's time, did have offensive wars against Jews and Christians. That rendering of Islamic history is what leads people to diligently or faithfully live a violent Islam. So, again, that is from the book No God But One by Nabil Qureshi. But I want to go back to the Quranic verses that Nabil referred to there, okay? So, the Holy Bible separates things into books, right, and then chapters and verses, but the Quran is separated by surahs. So, the ninth surah represents the last supposed revelations, but the last message from the false prophet Muhammad to his followers, okay? Now, this is where it's very, very important to understand the doctrine of abrogation. We're not going to get super deep here, just follow me. The doctrine of abrogation. That means that the belief that teachings and verses of the Quran have been repealed usually by later Quranic revelations, okay? So it's, it's the easy way of saying it is like, okay, hey, you know, I know what I said back in the past of all this peace and living together thing, but now I want you to listen to my message. And the message was bloody, okay? So Surah 9, which is Al-Taba, I'm going to read these to you in English, even though devout Muslims believe that if the Quran is not read and recited in Arabic, then it's not the true words of Allah, but I can't read or, or speak Arabic, and it's not going to make any difference to you. So I'm going to read those verses from Surah 9 to give you an idea of this is what you know, this was the final salvo. These are the final messages. This is, hey, it's it's the end of the fourth quarter. There's one play left. We're at the goal line. Here's the last play that the false prophet Muhammad gave to Muslims. So here's verse five. But once the sacred months have passed, kill the polytheists who violate their treaties wherever you find them. Capture them, besiege them, and lie in wait for them on every way. But if they repent, perform prayers, and pay alms tax, then set them free. Indeed, Allah is all-forgiving, most merciful. Now let's go to verses 29 through 33. Fight those who do not believe in Allah in the last day, nor comply with what Allah and his messenger have forbidden, nor embrace the religion of truth from among those who were given the scripture until they pay the tax, willingly submitting, fully humbled. The Jews say Ezra is the son of Allah, while the Christians say the Messiah is the son of Allah. Such are their baseless assertions, only parroting the words of early disbelievers. May Allah condemn them. How can they be deluded from the truth? They have taken their rabbis and monks as well as the Messiah, son of Mary, as lords besides Allah, even though they were commanded to worship none but one God. There is no God worthy of worship except Him. Glorified is He above what they have associated with Him. 
They wish to extinguish Allah's light with their mouths, but Allah will allow his light to be perfected even to the dismay of the disbelievers. He is the one who has sent his messenger with true guidance and the religion of truth, making it prevail over all others, even to the dismay of the polytheists. And let's read verse 111 here. Allah has indeed purchased from the believers their lives and wealth in exchange for paradise. They fight in the cause of Allah and kill or are killed. This is a true promise binding on him in the Torah, the Gospel, and the Quran. And whose promise is truer than Allah's? So rejoice in the exchange you have made with him. That is truly the ultimate triumph. So I think this is an important time to get into a discussion about radical Islam versus fundamentalist Islam. Because that's what we're, we're hearing a lot of right now. Oh, we're talking about radical Islam. I even talked to, uh, to Mark Lanier earlier this week on, on the episode I did with him on Tuesday. But we talk about Muslim extremism or extremist Muslims or radical Islam. But these are messages and colloquialisms used by people that don't understand Islam, that have not read the Quran, that don't understand the doctrine of abrogation, that look at the peaceful verses in the Quran and go, but see, we're supposed to be peaceful. And they don't understand that most of these Muslims that are truly devout, they don't believe that. They don't believe that at all. So these groups, Hamas, Israel, or not, sorry, not Israel, Hamas, the Taliban, Al-Qaeda, Boko Haram, ISIS, uh, Muslim Brotherhood, any of these organizations, they believe in a fundamentalist form of Islam. They take the ninth surah, literally. They take the hadith, where you know Muhammad is described as doing offensive battles against Jews and Christians, they take these things literally and they take them seriously. So again, I'll repeat, what Hamas did in Israel is exactly what the false prophet Muhammad would have wanted them to do. And Hamas definitely takes the Ninth Surah and the Hadith very, very seriously. So Hamas was founded in 1987, okay? So they released their charter, which is called the Hamas Covenant, on August 18th of the next year, okay, 1988. Here's the preamble from the Hamas Covenant. Israel will exist and will continue to exist until Islam will obliterate it, just as it obliterated others before it. Then we have Article 7. I'll read from that here, from the Hamas Covenant. The day of judgment will not come about until Muslims fight the Jews, killing the Jews, when the Jew will hide behind stones and trees, the stones and trees will say, O Muslims, O Abdullah, there is a Jew behind me. Come and kill him. And then this is from Article 15 of the Hamas Covenant. The day the enemies usurp part of Muslim land, jihad becomes the individual duty of every Muslim. In the face of the Jews' usurpation, it is compulsory that the banner of jihad is raised. And also, if you need even more evidence, about this ideology and how they inculcate their children into it. I heard from a pastor that knows people that live in this area, you know, Christians that live in Palestine. There are coloring books that are given to children in the Palestinian area that depict Jews being murdered by Muslims. These are coloring books. Coloring books. So it takes me back to the propaganda that was given to German children back during the Third Reich. Because they needed you to look at Jews as less than human so that it'd be easier to kill them, right? They're, they're rats. They're, they're subhuman, right? They're doing the same thing. Hamas is doing the exact same thing and has done the exact same thing until they're obliterated. More on that certainly here in a second. So we need to transition now into talking about the reality of evil, okay? 
when I talk about evil or whenever I describe evil, a lot of people kind of get this weird sense of like, ah, well, you know, evil takes place, but you know, we don't really know what it is. And, you know, we live in this postmodern moment, right? Where, you know, what's evil, what you consider evil maybe isn't actually tangibly evil. It's not explicitly evil. It's not like evil in all cases, right? Because, you know, morality is fungible and movable and all these different things. But in reality, evil exists and it exists in two forms. There's natural evil and there's moral evil. So natural evil is impossible to be done by man, but man is the victim. So think of tornadoes or earthquakes or floods or diseases or plagues, right? So there, there was an earthquake in Afghanistan that took place the same day that Hamas invaded Israel and thousands of Afghanis were killed, right? And obviously, since we pulled out from Afghanistan, we weren't able to help. And the Taliban certainly doesn't give a crap. But that's natural evil, right? The, an earthquake is a natural evil. Then we have moral evil. So this, this is done by man, and man is the victim. So think of murder, torture, rape, assault, defamation, any of these types of things. That's what Hamas did to Israel. But then we also have to go to Scripture, because if you believe that Scripture is God-breathed and is the Word of God literally, it kind of gives us some hints as to the reality of evil. So we can go all the way back to Genesis, where we talk about in Genesis 3, this is where evil incarnate first exposed itself to humanity, to the Imago Dei, to image bearers of God. So I'll read starting in verse 1 from Genesis 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field, and the Lord God had made, that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of the tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the tree in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But 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 the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired and make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So this is essentially the first evil act that is described involving humanity, and that was Satan manipulating this woman and Adam sitting there just idly by, just doing whatever he was doing, and that's when sin entered the world. And then if we go to the New Testament, we go to Ephesians 6, I'll start reading in verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, which you can use, which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Now you're going to have to ask yourself, guys, why would you need all of these things? Why would you need the armor of God? Why would you need this 
this belt? Why would you need these shoes? Why would you need, you know, the shield? Why would you need the helmet? Why would you need any of these things if evil didn't exist? There would, there would be no need for them because you'd be good to go regardless. And so again, I guess this is my message to Christians to be like, this is not a cue to you to believe that evil doesn't really exist or, you know, evil's relative, right? That there's no, uh, you know, specific declarations of what would make one thing evil versus another thing not evil, okay? If you believe in the Bible and you believe in Scripture, obviously evil exists, and then also you get some marching orders for how to deal with it. But now I want to transition to talking about what we should not do regarding the situation and then what we should do, okay? We're going to spend a lot of time on what we should not do. So kind of attached to the last thing I talked about, we should not divert our eyes, our ears, or our attention away from the reality of evil. I know a lot of Christians, males and females, that when anything bad happens, they're like, "Ah, I don't want to see that. So they literally cover their eyes, they plug their ears, they want to go do something else, okay? So their lives revolve around fun and having as much fun as possible, right? So they don't want anything to make them feel bad or feel icky. Their life is about fun, right? They want to go see movies, and they want to go to the salon, or they want to go to the the golf club, or they want to just do things that make them happy. They just want to zone out and watch, you know, funny television or shows or whatever thing like that. They don't want to see anything real because it makes them feel bad. But as I was thinking through the situation, I was reminded of a quote from The Art of War written by Sun Tzu. This was written, you know, somewhere between 200 and 500 years before Christ, but it's this quote. If you know the enemy and yourself, you need not fear the results of 100 battles. If you know yourself, but not the enemy, for every victory gained, you will also suffer a defeat. If you know neither the enemy nor yourself, you will succumb in every battle. So to the people out there that are probably not listening to this because of how rough it's been up to this point, to the people out there that your modus operandi, your your default mechanism is to avoid negativity, to avoid dark things, to avoid things that don't make you feel good, or as John Cooper says, gives you the sads or something like that, allow me to encourage you to not operate in that way. Don't comport yourself in that way. Because ignoring darkness doesn't make the darkness go away. It actually emboldens the darkness. But also, we should not give any support whatsoever whatsoever, to those that are drawing a moral equivalence between Hamas and Israel. Because there is no moral equivalence to Israel, uh, Israeli civilians being killed by Hamas and Palestinian civilians that are killed by the Israeli military. There is no moral equivalence. Because we should be able to hold in tension that the innocent people killed by Hamas and the innocent people killed by Israel uh, are both happening, all the while understanding that the people responsible for every single drop of blood shed during this time is on the hands of Hamas and those that helped them to plan and carry out this attack. They are responsible for every drop of blood spilled in this situation, okay? To include the, the blood of the innocent Palestinian civilians. Because you have to ask yourself, would any of these deaths have occurred if Hamas had not attacked Israel first? And as we've seen throughout this entire conflict, Hamas is doing everything possible to ensure that civilians, Israeli civilians, would be slaughtered. That was their goal. That was their express written goal, was to make sure that Israeli civilians died. Israel, on the other hand, is doing everything possible to ensure that Palestinian civilians 
are not harmed in any way. This would include them sending texts to Palestinian civilians telling them to flee areas that they are about to bomb. Calling them, saying, we are going to bomb this area, you need to get out. They actually drop warning missiles in areas that they're about to bomb, right? Or, or, or air warning bombs. These are bombs that will go off above buildings to kind of like shake and rattle the building, right? To warn the people like, seriously, get out, okay? Hamas, on the other hand, is forcing the civilians to stay in these areas so that when or if they die, the Western mainstream media will talk about the civilian casualties and, you know, they were killed by these evil Israelis, these evil Jews, which we've already seen that. We've seen that over and over, okay? Because Hamas, they're, they're great at the propaganda arm of this. As you may recall, there was supposedly a hospital that was blown up by Israel and 500 people died, right? They, they knew it immediately, right? Oh, yep, 500 people dead. Everybody reported it. New York Times, Washington Post, everybody reported it. Until we found out almost within a day that not only did the hospital not get knocked down by Israel, the hospital wasn't knocked down at all. There was actually a rocket that dropped in the parking lot of the hospital. 500 people definitely didn't die. It was more like a dozen people. Tragic, but it was not 500 people dead. It was more like a dozen. Oh, and it wasn't an Israel attack. It was actually a, a failed rocket that was shot by Hamas. But the media ran with it. As of this week, the, even the New York Times has not issued a retraction of the story. They've issued an editor's note. But even still, even if they did a full-throated retraction, the lie has already gone around the world a hundred million times, right? People think that Israel dropped a bomb on a hospital. And this plays into the Hamas game because Hamas has their military headquarters in the basement of a hospital on purpose. Hamas puts weapons caches and fighting outposts in mosques and schools on purpose. Because if those things are attacked by Israel, then the headline can be uh, Palestinian mosque destroyed by Israel, right? It's not Hamas military outpost or Hamas weapons cache destroyed by Israeli military. It's the other thing. And Hamas leadership has consistently used international humanitarian aid funds to pay for their terroristic activities. Okay, they've used the money, right? Because again, they're living in, in Qatar or, or Turkey right now using the money that's supposed to go to, you know, feed and clothe the people of Palestine, right? But there's a massive sewage problem that's currently taking place in the Palestinian areas because again, Hamas, they have no infrastructure. They're not an actual government. They're just a terrorist organization. But the international community got together to pay for these new sewage pipes to be sent to these areas so that they could fix their sewage problems so that people aren't sitting there in their own filth. And what did the Hamas terrorists do with those pipes? They built missiles. They built missile tubes, rockets. They've dug up their own water infrastructure. Everything's been made about, oh, Israel turned off the water, which also proves that they care for the people in that area because they're providing them with, with water and electricity. But that's notwithstanding. They have dug up, Hamas has dug up their own infrastructure as it pertains to water so that they can have more missile tubes. That, that's the organization that we're talking about. Now, you know, this statement doesn't exactly apply anymore, uh, but before the attacks it did, it's been said many times, but it bears repeating, if Palestine disarmed today, I guess you could say if, if Hamas disarmed today, there would be peace between Israel and Palestine. But if Israel disarmed today, Israel would cease to exist. 
That's the reality of the situation. So if you're trying to equivocate this, this both sides, oh, there's evil on both sides situations, there's not. Both sides don't even care for their own people in the same way, right? Because right now, and for essentially all of Israel's history, they've done everything they can to care and provide for their populace. A populace, which includes 20% Palestinian Arabs, by the way, there's, there's actually an Arab that's even on the Israeli Supreme Court, by the way, but the rulers of Palestine have shown absolutely zero regard for their own people. They're not allowing them to escape. They're holding them up in front of cameras and saying, you know, hey, say this, do this. They're forcing them to stand in front of them as they fight Israel so that if they die, they win the propaganda war. And it's just one of those things where, where people are just so easily swayed by these pictures, but they don't really deal with the fact that, hey, because again, there's this catch-22 where it's like the Palestinian people want Hamas in power because they voted them into power, right? They support a lot of this. There was plenty of videos happening where they were bringing Israelis, uh, dead Israelis, back to the Palestinian areas and you know, walking them and driving them through the streets to the, the cheers and ad- adulation of all these Palestinians, right? So what's happening right now is being unable to call these attacks evil, which we're seeing a lot of in the media. People just can't seem to get the word evil out of their minds or out of their faces, rather. If you can't call these attacks evil, it's a sign of moral cowardice. Because it's very easy to take the third way approach to be, be in the middle because you get to seem smart, you get to seem loving, you get to seem empathetic, but it actually makes you pathetic. Because it's very easy to be able to look at this situation and be like, yes, this is, this is abject evil. It is objectively evil. And if you can't do that, that is a sign of cowardice. Ben Shapiro mentioned uh, during a show, which by the way, the work that he did uh, after these attacks, those episodes he did right after the attacks, are, those are going to go down in history for him as, as the most important works that he's done, I think, personally. But he said that moral cowardice is what kills the West, which I completely agree with that. And it reminded me of the Spurgeon quote, bold-hearted men are always called mean-spirited by cowards. And there are a lot of cowards right now that think that they just, oh, we, we, we can't talk about one without talking about the other. And they just don't see that every, again, every single drop of blood that is spilled in this conflict is because of Hamas. Every single drop. Also, we should not give any support to those around the world that are celebrating this attack by Hamas. So we've seen a lot of support on college campuses for not just the Palestinian people, not just praying for peace, but saying, no, this was good. It was good what Palestine did because Israel are oppressors or something. They're, they're colonizers or something. Because again, these people don't understand history. These people don't actually read books. These people have just passed, been passed along the public school system until they get to college. And then they get finally and fully radicalized into this leftist worldview. And there's data that has come out uh, saying that the majority of young people in this country think what Palestine or what Hamas did in Israel was appropriate and justified. And Islam, uh, people that are Muslims in America, they believe the same thing. A plurality of Muslims in America think that what Hamas did was acceptable. They have no moral qualms with it whatsoever. That'll kind of give you a sense of what things may look like in the future for us. And then also a lot was made about Black Lives Matter. So Black Lives Matter Chicago posted a picture that a lot of you have likely seen right now. It said, I stand with Palestine, but it has a paraglider with a Palestine flag on the top of it. So there's no confusion as to the message that they're trying to portray because again the paragliders are the ones that flew into that music festival and started slaughtering jews 
raping Jews, taking Jews hostage. So Black Lives Matter is all about this. They love this, which might make you think, like, what does, what does the killing of Jews by Hamas have to do with Black Lives Matter? It's because it's a worldview. It's this Marxist worldview, this Hegelian worldview of oppressed versus oppressor. The dynamic of you're in power, so you must have gotten that power by ill-gotten means, right? And so anyone that is seen as being oppressed is seen as being righteous regardless of their actions. Now also, I'm old enough to remember being called unchristlike, unloving, and actually racist for not using the hashtag Black Lives Matter hashtag BLM hashtags or posting the black square on my Instagram after St. George Floyd overdosed while in police custody in 2020. I remember trying to tell all of these people that Black Lives Matter, the organization, not the sentence, but the organization was a racial grift founded by wildly Marxist left-leaning God-haters. I remember that. Now, that organization is openly supporting murdering, raping, kidnapping fundamentalist Muslim terrorist groups. Now, I also remember a bunch of very prominent Christians, celebrity pastors, if you will, they bowed to this Marxist organization, they bowed to the woke mob, and they posted the black square on their social accounts, just like good little boys and girls. I remember that. Perhaps you've heard of some of them. Carl Lentz of Hillsong, formerly of Hillsong, Stephen Furtick of Elevation, Judah Smith of Church Home, T.D. Jakes of the Potter's House Church, Beth Moore of Who Gives a Crap, and Craig Rochelle of Life Church. There were others, but those are the most prominent ones. And it's funny, though, I haven't seen any of these people post anything else or say anything else about the fact that Black Lives Matter is now openly supporting grandmother murdering, girl raping, baby, baby mutilating savages. I've seen nothing from these people. And here's the thing. I have sympathy or empathy, whatever word I'm supposed to use, for people making a mistake. Because it's like, oh, I've certainly made mistakes. I've supported organizations that I wish I wouldn't have supported. I've supported ministries that I wish I wouldn't have supported. But I can't go back in time and fix it. I can only address now what I can think now. Like with Ravi Zacharias, I supported RZIM in that ministry. And then it was found out that Ravi Zacharias was a sexual deviant. And it's like, uh, that does kind of tinge everything that I ever talked about in terms of like sexual uh, propriety or morality, right? But why won't Carl Lentz, Stephen Furtick, Judah Smith, T.D. Jakes, Beth Moore, Craig Rochelle, why won't they say anything? Why won't they just come out? You know how easy it would be to do a quick Instagram live or a quick video saying, hey, back in 2020, during all the hubbub and craziness that was going on, uh, I bought into the lie that uh, Black Lives Matter was just a neutral organization that cared about black lives and all these different things. Uh, I now realize that it's just a racial grift organization that stole a bunch of money and basically laundered a bunch of money that these these groups don't care about people. They certainly don't care about the gospel and the fact that they support uh, what happened uh, in Israel, that what Hamas did to Israelis is absolutely reprehensible. Uh, again, I completely repudiate. I'm going to leave the the black square on my Instagram just as a message to everybody that, hey, I, I could even make mistakes, but I completely repudiate that organization. I wish we wouldn't have given them any play. I wish we wouldn't have donated any money to them, blah, blah, blah. How hard would that be? But again, when you're such an egomaniac and everything is based on your image and not based on the truth of the gospel or scripture that you're purportedly supposed to be shepherding your flock with, then I, I guess you really don't need to mess with it, right? Also, we should not allow ourselves to be played by Hamas 
when it comes to their trickle of releasing hostages. Because I think as of this morning, I'm recording this on, on Wednesday, October the 25th, I think they've released four hostages. Two of those have been Americans. And now the narrative has shifted. It shifted all of a sudden to, well, if we can just get most of the hostages back, we can probably just do a ceasefire. <coughs> we can probably just call for peace at that point. But this is a game that Hamas is playing. They're, they're wanting you to see them as not all bad. See, you know, we did, I know we kidnapped these people and we murdered their entire families and communities, but look, we just gave them back. But they're not going to release all the hostages. But here's the other thing. Even if they did, even if as I'm recording this, they are like, you know what? We've realized the error of our ways. We're going to release all these hostages to Qatar and then they're going to distribute them out back to, to where they, their homelands and things like that. You still have to destroy them. You still do. Because there are still 1,400 dead Israelis. These, these women have, are still raped. They're still tortured. So they're, they're playing a game. Don't fall for it. Also, we should not support any movement to relocate Palestinian refugees to our country. Okay? So this hasn't been talked about as much, but there are Palestinians that are trying to get out. But here's the problem. There's no way to vet these people, really. Because if you run someone's name through a database, it doesn't tell you what they believe. It tells you at least some of what they've done before, but it doesn't tell you what they believe. Because even if they're not Hamas, okay, we have no idea of knowing if they're the ones that also hate America and want all Americans to die, or if they're just a normal person. We don't know that. So why in the world would we let that person into our country? Because we already are going to have issues with them assimilating into American culture, but we don't know if they hate us and want us to die and are easily going to be radicalized. <coughs> Excuse me. Look at what's happening in Europe right now. Like London, over 100,000 people uh, that have, you know, immigrated to the UK, you know, after their, you know, urban or the, what was it, the Muslim spring or whatever that thing, when they were just kind of spread out all throughout Europe, they're having major problems, not just with assimilation, but with these fundamentalist Islamist views being thrust down their throats because they're being so accommodating, right? And here's the other thing. Arab countries surrounding Israel aren't taking in the refugees from Palestine either. Don't you think there's a reason for that? Because even these people, and you know, presumably, so presumably you would think that Palestinians can more easily assimilate to the cultures of Egypt or Jordan or Qatar or Turkey or Lebanon or Syria or any of these places, but they're not taking them. Why? Because if any of these Arab countries that are in that area accept some of these people, they know that they're going to be getting some Hamas fighters, not just refugees. It's not just, you know, women and children. And again, even if it is women and children, are these women and children that hate the West, that want all Jews and Americans to die? But also, we shouldn't give any support to those calling for de-escalation, a ceasefire, or peace negotiations. We're getting a lot of that language now. Oh, we just need to de-escalate and Israel needs to stop being so mean and let's just have a ceasefire. Like, let's just, let's just negotiate peace. So first of all, who's going to be negotiating exactly? Oh, so Israel's supposed to negotiate with Hamas, who in its charter says they want all Jews to die and they're not going to stop until they've killed all the Jews. There are no two parties to negotiate between. But also, let me be clear, you have no moral obligation whatsoever to call for or to perform de-escalation, ceasefire, or peace with savages that have kidnapped, raped, and murdered your children. Actually, the opposite is true. 
You have a moral obligation to oppose these people. And let me just remind you, the Palestinians had their chance. Since the 1990s, on multiple occasions, they have been offered land and money in exchange for the cessation of hostilities towards Israel. They have refused each and every time. You might ask yourself, why did they do that? Well, it's not because the deals weren't good enough, because there wasn't enough money or land involved. It was because the deals would result in Israel still existing and Jews still being able to live, and they just aren't down with that. They're expressly not down with that. Now, also there's people saying the hostilities, you know, these hostilities would just stop if the international community would just up its financial support of the Palestinians, which is so foolish. I mean, if you believe this, you are a fool. And do you know how I know that giving more humanitarian aid to the Palestinians will not stop Hamas from killing Jews? Because we and many other other nations from around the world have been continuously giving these people financial aid for decades, and they still attack the Jews. And it's funny, they seem to have run out of water and electricity, but they have yet to run out of missiles and rockets. Is that interesting? So I don't think Israel should de-escalate. Not at all. They should do everything possible, everything in their power to annihilate Hamas. What Hamas did to the Israeli people cannot go unpunished. Now, you'll get into these Christian arguments where it's like, well, shouldn't we be about forgiveness and everything's about peace and, you know, all these different things and justice would be if everything stopped and if no more innocents died. I was reminded of when Dylan Roof, uh, the situation with him. So Dylan Roof was that white supremacist kid that went in to uh, this black church and specifically targeted, targeted black people for destruction, killed a bunch of these people. And within like two days, the family members uh, like of the, the slain people from this church, one by one, you know, went and they, they went to the courthouse or wherever and they, one by one, to Dylan Roof's face, they forgave him for killing their family members. One of the most beautiful things I've ever seen because they were calling him to repentance and to accept the gospel. And he literally just killed their family members because of the level of melanin in their skin. But what you did not see is for the family, the family did not start advocating that Dylan Roof not be punished. They forgave him. They, they desperately pleaded with him to accept the gospel and accept the free gift of grace through the, you know, the death of Christ on the cross. They, they, they advocated for that, but they also advocated for Dylan Roof to be punished. Because you can be forgiven, but that does not mean that you will receive no consequences. So presumably you could forgive Hamas for what they've done, but they need to receive the consequence of no longer existing. And also, I completely, completely reject this oppressed versus oppressor narrative that I talked about a little bit earlier. This, you know, big guy versus small guy nonsense, which is where a lot of this plays into. Because there are people that say Israel was always bullying the Palestinians. Again, if you, do, if you think that, you don't understand history, you don't understand the rights to the land. and also. A lot of people are saying that the response is not proportionate. Well, Israel, they're responding in a non-proportionate way. Well, here's the reality. I've, I've thought of a couple examples. Well, if you come up to me and you attack me and you punch me in the face and I double leg you, I dump you on your head, I mount you, and then I rain down elbows on your face until I feel like you've been sufficiently uh, neutralized, that is not a proportionate response, but it's an appropriate response. You attacked me. So this isn't a tit-for-tat thing. This isn't, oh, you hit me in my jaw once and I wasn't knocked out, so I get to hit you once, and if you don't get knocked out, we're, we're either even or you get to go again. Like, that's not how this goes. And also, I loved what uh, Douglas Murray said. He's been interviewed by some woke uh, reporter in the UK, and they're talking about the proportionate response, and he was like, what exactly would be proportionate here? You know, tallying up the exact 
number of Israeli women that have been raped and to rape that exact number of Palestinian women, to behead the exact number of Israelis that have been beheaded, and then to behead the exact same number of Palestinians? Like, what do you mean by proportionate? It doesn't make any sense. And also, if Lebanon, right, that's Hezbollah and Iran, uh, Iran, uh, if you have Syria, that's ISIS and Russia, and then Iran enter the conflict against Israel, mind you, these same people would not change their views and start advocating for Israel. Because again, they're like, well, Israel's big, Palestine, Palestine's small, so you know we have to fight the oppressor. Israel is the oppressor. Well, all of a sudden, if it's Israel versus Palestine, Lebanon, Syria, and Iran, then everything flips. And these people are not intellectually consistent or honest, and so they're not going to start advocating for Israel because in that situation, Israel would be the little guys. They're not going to do that. And what about the Hamas terrorists that oppress people in Palestine that did not vote for Hamas? I don't hear about the oppressed versus oppressor dynamic there because there are, uh, there are people in Palestine that did not vote for the Hamas terrorists, right? But there aren't, these people aren't advocating for those people. And I hear about this all the time. You know, I hear about you know, Native Americans here in this country, and I hear about white settlers and you know, colonization and all these types of things. But you know what I never hear from these same people? These same people never talk about those same Native American tribes that were oppressing other Native American tribes, like that, that were enslaving and raping and slaughtering these other innocent tribes, right? This idea that all these, you know, tribes are just sitting in this country, you know, smoking peace pipes and, and having, you know, big, big feasts is, is false. They don't talk about that oppressor versus oppressed narrative. They only want to talk about the white devil versus the Native Americans, right? And I've heard a lot about peace negotiations and in reference to the peace negotiations. You can't negotiate with savages. It's not possible. You can't negotiate with animals. Also not possible. And in reference to not being able to negotiate with savages or animals, some of you are going to be offended by my word choices there. Oh, aren't you calling image bearers of Christ savages and animals? Yeah, I am. Might I remind you that the highest honor in Islam is someone that dies performing jihad which is killing of innocence. Like, you don't get 72 virgins, supposedly by this worldview, for helping an old lady across the street. You get 72 virgins, virgins for chopping her head off because she's Jewish and dying in the process. That's what you get. These people don't understand logic nor reason. They understand strength. And Israel should show the full extent of their strength now. So I know that was a long time talking about what we should not do, but I'll quickly go through what we should do. So we have three Ps here. We should pray, we should pay, and we should prepare. So let's talk about pray. We should pray for these Hamas terrorists that are currently acting like savages and animals to repent and turn to Christ. We should. It is possible. Christ can snatch these dudes up. But if these people do not repent and put their faith in Christ, we should pray that their lives would end quickly so that they can't shed any more innocent blood. Absolutely. That may seem rough, but it's the truth. We need to pray for these people to die. Also, we should pray for peace. Right now, peace will only happen if Hamas repents or is annihilated. And I'm assuming annihilation is going to be more realistic than repentance. We should also pray for the Israeli military members and their families because uh, Israeli military members are surely going to die in this conflict. There will be a ground invasion and a lot of Israeli military members will be killed and that will affect their families 
And we know that all too well here in America, what kind of effect that can have. Even if they survive, the effects that it'll have on their brains afterwards is not going to be, you know, unsubstantial. We should obviously pray for the victims and the families of the victims from this initial terrorist attack. Uh, again, Romans twelve fifteen uh, comes to mind, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Um, there are still people, again, these people have already been forgotten because the news cycle has moved on, but there are people who have had their family members slaughtered, some of them in front of them. There's nothing they could do about it. We should pray for those people. We should pray for the Palestinian Christians currently in so-called Palestine because there are Palestinian Christians there. I know for a fact there are Christians in Palestine that do not support Hamas, they do not support Jihad, they do not you know, believe in the Quran, they don't believe in the Shahada, they don't believe in Muhammad as the prophet, they don't believe any of that. Gosh, they're super stuck right now. We should pray for them. And we should pray for anyone in Palestine that didn't vote for Hamas and feels stuck. Maybe they're not Christians, maybe they are Muslims, but they you know, uh, purport to be on the more peaceful side of that. They don't want to be ruled by Hamas, they don't agree with what Hamas did to the, the Jewish people in Israel. We should pray for those people as well. Also, we should pay. So there are six organizations that I feel comfortable recommending to you guys in terms of organizations that you can support. They will be in the show notes, but it's Friends of the Israel, Israel Defense Forces, Israel Rescue, American Friends of Magan David Adam, International Fellowship of Christians and Jews, the Ari Fold Project, and Save Our Allies. So you can go to all their websites and vet all those people yourself, but I feel comfortable with those. I will say specifically with Save Our Allies, we've talked on this show to Chad Robichaud, Tim Kennedy, Sarah Verardo, uh, but I also know Nick Palmashano. That's the group that got like 15,000 Afghans out of Afghanistan after our pullout in like 12 days or something like that. So they are doing operations on the ground right now to try to get Americans out of Israel that are stuck in Israel. And I can't talk too much about it, but there are, they're trying to get plans in place to try and retrieve our American hostages as well. Okay. And so those people need our dollars. And again, I fully, fully support any of you that would want to support those organizations. And the last thing here is that we should prepare. We should prepare. Number one, we should prepare to share the gospel. Because in this situation, in this extreme situation of death and carnage, there is a gospel conversation in that as well talking about where do you go when you die? Have you reckoned with that reality of death and what that potentially means for you in eternity? Uh, Worldviews are going to be coming up, the combination and comparison of Judaism and Islam and Christianity. So you should be prepared to share the gospel. But you also need to be prepared for something like this to happen in your country. The majority of our audience is American. You need to prepare for this. We have a completely porous southern border. Okay? In the last calendar year, as my Senator James Lankford pointed out, we have encountered people from every single country on the globe at our southern border. That includes North Korea, China, Iran, Nigeria, uh, any of these places that has people, Syria, Iraq, Afghanistan, where people don't like Americans. There are known sleeper cells in Americans that have not been activated. A sleeper cell is a group of people that have been radicalize or fundamentalize, however you want to talk about it, and they are ready to perform jihad and do terrorist attacks in this country. They just haven't been activated yet. Maybe they're waiting on funding, maybe, maybe they're waiting on the right time, training, whatever. There are sleeper cells here. And we have encountered, that it's already been reported, hundreds of people that are on the terror watch list at our southern border. Okay, so these are people that are known terrorists that want to kill Americans. They've been encountered at the southern border. 
But as you'll, you'll come to know, and as you've probably come to find out, there's way more people that we haven't caught. So there are 100%, without a doubt, terrorists here in this country. There was the global call for the day of jihad right here a couple of Fridays ago. I just got to tell you, my friends and I were ready to throw down on that day. So if they decided to come to our kids' school, if they decided to come to our place of business or any of those types of things, we were ready. And I'll leave it at that. But most Americans are not ready. You don't conceal carry. You haven't trained with a firearm or any weapon system. You don't know how to fight. And if something happens, you're just going to be one of the sheep that is slaughtered. And I don't understand that ideology. Again, it goes back to this idea that, you know, we're just going to cover our eyes, plug our ears, and hope it all turns out okay. Well, this isn't a kid's movie, okay? This isn't going to just have a happy ending. Because if somebody decides that they want to go full jihad in your area, send them to their virgins quickly before they can kill anyone else around you. So again, we should pray, we should pay, and we should prepare. And again, guys, just to finish up here, we should hate evil. I'm going to go back to Psalm 9710 from the beginning of this podcast. Let those who love the Lord hate evil, for he guards the lives of his faithful ones and delivers them from the hand of the wicked. Guys, we do not sympathize or empathize with evil. We do not try to find common ground with evil. We do not try to find some mythical middle ground or third way with evil. We are called to hate it. And I'll leave you with Deuteronomy 32:35. Vengeance belongs to me, I will repay. In time their foot will slip, for their day of disaster is near, and their doom is coming quickly. I certainly hope so. All right, guys, before we let you go, we are going to do a quick resilience boost. At Undaunted Life, our mission is equipping men to push back darkness with content that forges spiritual, mental, and physical resilience. I've got links to several things I've talked about today. So our email list. So if you're not on our email list, you can get on there. All the books by Nabil Qureshi are here. I've got some YouTube videos from Ben Shapiro, the work that he did right after these attacks. And then also I've got links to all those organizations that I think that you should donate to, to uh, help people in this time in this crazy situation. So all that is right there in the show notes. Thank you guys so much for listening to this episode. Wherever you're listening to this, please subscribe, rate, and leave us a positive five-star review. If you want me to come speak live at your event or on your podcast, just shoot me an email to info at undaunted.life. That's I-N-F-O at undaunted.life. Follow us on Instagram and like us on Facebook and check out our website for everything else, including how to donate to keep more content like this coming your way. Just go to www.undaunted.life. And also we want to thank the band Holy Name for allowing us to use their music for our content. The music on this podcast is their song, Perpetua, which is off their self-titled debut album on Face Down Records. The links are in the description. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Remember, keep pushing back darkness, keep forging spiritual, mental, and physical resilience, keep seeking the Lion of Judah. <laughs>